When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. The recent death of Her Majesty the Queen threw light on her personal passions, developed over the rich 96 years of her life. Corgis and horses were, of course, well-known interests, But gardens and plants were a lifelong fascination for her, from her earliest pre-war years right through to one of her final public engagements at the 2022 Chelsea Flower Show. Hello, I'm Lucy, and my guest today is Alan Titchmarsh, who shared many gardening moments with the Queen, both in public and in private. And in this episode of the Gardener's Well podcast, he reflects not only on her personal interests, but also her place in a long line of royal gardeners. So I started by asking Alan about his earliest encounter with the Queen. It was memorable in in many ways. It was the second garden I'd ever done at Chelsea Flower Show. My first one was in 1983, and I did a family garden for Woman's Own magazine. It was was quite pretty, and it had a pink and white striped parasol, I remember. And I got a silver gilt medal for it, which I was thrilled to bits with. Uh, Two years later, I did another one called a country kitchen garden, which was a very simple affair, the size of a normal family back garden, perhaps about 20 feet by 40 feet. And I divided it up. I had a path going right down the middle, classic cottage garden, little beds either side with fruit trees and vegetables and flowers and some wildflowers underneath the apple trees. Um, And on the Monday of Chelsea, there I was all smart in my maroon, black and white striped blazer, white trousers and a yellow bow tie. I don't know why I was wearing that. Um, and I was standing on my garden and the president, Robin Herbert, who was a very tall man, brought the Queen across to look at it. And my heart must have been thumping. I'd never met the Queen before. And she came across and shook my hand and looked over the little flint wall, a napped flint wall I had around my little kitchen garden, my cottage garden. And um, she looked for a moment and paused and then turned to me and said, your onions are very small. 
I was a little crestfallen, uh, but, but she very quickly followed it up with, I like them small. When they're large, they taste of nothing at all. So <laughs> that was my uh, first encounter with the green. Fast forward to 2014, when I did a garden at Chelsea Flower Show to celebrate 50 years of Britain in bloom and my 50 years in horticulture, professional gardening. And uh, I'd done a, a garden uh, which wasn't judged because it was for the RHS. It was called From the Moors to the Sea, reflecting my journey from Ilkley Moor right the way down to where I now have a little house on the Isle of Wight. So it started off at the back with birch trees and moorland heathers and things like that and dry stone walls and big boulders coming down to the front and a little lagoon with a beach hut. And the Queen came across and so many years on from our first meeting in 85 in 2014, she said, oh, your boulders are rather large. And I thought, what a long way we'd come from small onions. <laughs> oh, how lovely. I mean, she was a regular at Chelsea Flower Show. Did you sense there was more than duty at play there? I'm pretty sure there was. And the other remark I remember on that first garden, I had some little pyramidal clipped hollies. And she said, I like your clipped ilex. And I thought, mm. oh, Queen knows a Latin name. And it transpired over the years that she knew far more about gardening, not necessarily that she ever let on, but that pe- than people realised. And uh, it was great pleasure, you know, showing around gardens, and she would enjoy what she was looking at. She wasn't forced to come to Chelsea Flower Show, but she came more than, you know, more than 50 times in her reign. And she was always interested, as was the Duke. They used to go their separate ways, and the Duke would go one way, and she'd go another way. I do remember remember one funny story about the Duke who went to uh, the Flemings Garden. The Australian firm of Flemings used to regularly come to Chelsea and, and build a garden that was splendid for outdoor living, it being Australian and warm. And they had some cycads in this garden. And uh, the Duke went up, classic, arms folded behind back, and said, hmm, like your palm trees. And one of the Australian Flemings guys said, oh, they're not, not palm trees, sir, they're sarcads. They they're look a bit like palm trees, but actually they're much more primitive. And he was stopped in his tracks by the Duke who said, didn't want a bloody lecture. <laughs> but he was always good. Uh, at, you know, and then, of course, everybody roared with laughter. So, But the Queen was much more uh, gentle about her criticisms, uh, albeit the onion comment. Yes, I bet. And and that sort of gentle appreciation of what people are doing um, at such a high level. What sort of gardens was she drawn to? Did you did you spot? It was interesting. She she had it was it was ages before people realised what sort of flowers she liked. It sort of came out, as it were, into the open uh, only a few years ago. That she and it was it was not remotely surprising that she liked simple flowers. She loved lily of the valley and primroses, and what you might call humble flowers. There was a great echo there. It's very interesting because the wife, the queen of Edward VII at Sandringham, Queen Alexandra, she didn't like big Victorian bedding. She liked what she called my poor little flowers, which were the little wildflowers. So there was a similar predilection for flowers which were more modest in their appearance but had great charm. And every weekend that was spent at Windsor, when the queen... Our Queen Elizabeth II would come back to Buckingham Palace. The gardeners at Buckingham Palace would have made her a little posy which would sit on her desk to welcome her back. And it would be the seasonal flowers, but the little ones. We're not talking about great armfuls of lilies. And uh, Her Majesty really appreciated that little tiny posy on her desk which reflected the seasons and showed what was out at that time. And just a few months ago, 
um, I was um, invited to be patron. Um, uh, the Council of Wessex is the royal patron of the Royal Windsor Flower and Rose Society show in June, um, which has just been sort of resurrected th this year. And I was asked if I'd be the sort of ordinary patron. So the Countess of Wessex and I went round together and looked at things, and, and we had to judge a tiny little miniature arrangement of flowers uh, in one of the classes there. And the winning one, um, the Countess took up to Windsor Castle that afternoon to give to the Queen. So we know it got there and we know she liked it. Oh, gosh, how lovely. But of course, everywhere she went, she did participate in the local community. We know that from Balmoral. We know we did. she did that at Sandringham. I think you came across her at, at Sandringham. Obviously, she did at Windsor too. But um, I know you I know you, uh, you had a rather lovely encounter, I seem to recall, at the, uh, at the WI, did you not? Yes. Um, I, I think this is a rod for my own back, this story, really. Um, I, um, I was asked to talk to the WI at their annual general meeting in January 2000, so you know, it's 22 years ago, um, and I'd just been given the MBE in the New Year Honours list. Uh, my investiture there wasn't until the following June, and there at the Sandingham WI I was asked to be the turn and do the talk, and it was great fun. The Queen was very attentive, and when the Queen... Sitting in the front row, not very far away from me, I stood up behind this trestle table and noticed that the Queen was only about three feet away. And I said, oh, gosh, man, we're awfully close, aren't we? And she, she took over the edge of the table and said, yes, you pull, I'll push, just to give me a few more inches of space. Um, and to make the Queen laugh was a great delight. We all know that wonderful, radiant smile. Um, but to make her laugh and to talk about... Her gardens at Sandringham, I remember saying, because of course she's there in the winter, she was there in the winter, and I remember saying to you, do you mind coming in the winter, ma'am? There's not much to see. Oh, she said, I love my witch hazels in, in the winter. She said, the only problem is that now they're so tall, and at this point she'd little jump off the floor. She said, I have to jump up to sniff them. So I... I got back home and then ordered a half a dozen smaller witch hazels that she wouldn't have to leap up in the air and got a nice thank you letter from the trouble. So she really liked... I think the thing about the houses was it was it was Sandringham in winter and for Christmas and she would come back from Sandringham after Accession Day, uh, the day she acceded to the throne, 6th of February. So right the way through from Christmas to February, she'd stay there. Then there'd be Windsor at weekends and there'd be Balmoral for the summer holidays. Uh, so it was this... The court moved uh, right the way around the country and I, she enjoyed I remember her saying that, that the only place she ever spent more than two months in the same bed was at Balmoral and Scotland was very dear to her not least I mean her mother was Scottish and she spent a lot of time up there as well and the garden at Balmoral there's a formal rose garden immediately outside the castle but then just across the lawns where some Prince Philip did quite a lot of work there but not in the rose garden he wrote me a letter once telling me that he left that well alone um, but there is the most glorious conservatory it's not huge it might be Oh, perhaps 15, 20 feet wide with a door in the middle at the front and then staging, tiered at the back, absolutely full of flowers. Um, and these, this glorious conservatory was packed by the time the Queen got up there for her summer holidays with the most wonderful floral displays. There was one admission, though, from the Queen uh, once. She said to me, um, Prince Philip's doing some gardening at Balmoral, but it's the kind of gardening I don't like. So I said, what sort of gardening's that, ma'am? She said, the sort that uses a bulldozer. 
And sure enough, in the letter that he wrote to tell me, the reason the letter came was I'd sent a book um, that I'd written called Royal Gardeners. I thought I'd better send a copy to the Queen. And it traced royal gardening right from William the Conqueror to the present day. Um, and I included what I thought was most of the things that the Queen and the Duke had done. And the Duke sent me a closely typed two-sided letter of A4, which I gather he typed himself um, explaining to me what I'd left out that he'd done. And I noticed that one of the things he said he'd done was he'd used a bulldozer to make a pond in the woodland at Balmoral. And I said, oh, yes, I've heard about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like lots of couples, they share gardens or they shared they shared several gardens, didn't they? Um, how do you think that worked out? Well, cle- clearly... <laughs> Clearly, in that instance, not so well. But um, they obviously had a mutual love then of of plants, or perhaps it was more physical on Philip's part. I think also he was a great um, parkland man. I mean, he was the ranger of Windsor Great Park, and he loved planting avenues. And the letter included a lot of avenues he'd planted at Sandringham, at Balmoral, uh, and at Windsor. So he, he was he was a perhaps a wider landscape man rather than an intricate gardener. So it would be the Queen who would like the smaller flowers. There's a Lovely um, at Sandringham uh, on one end of the house. There's a series of garden rooms that were designed by Geoffrey Jellicoe and Sylvia Crow, and they're still there and, and very much in evidence. Um, and they, in particular, are the flower garden bit, if you like. Then there's that enormous great Edwardian rock garden at Sandringham, made of pullamite, which is a sort of artificial stone which had a, a secret recipe. They they would never reveal what pullamite was made of, but there's there's that there. And I'm quite sure that um, now that the king has inherited Sandringham, that he'll be, you know, happy to get his hands on that because, of course, what he's done at Highgrove is very much one man's personal garden. And you and I have both been there. And it is, like anybody's garden, you like some bits more than others, but you really do feel the man coming through. Gardens, I feel, that have been made by one person rather than a committee always have soul and you really feel it in the garden at Highgrove. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. And it must have been something very hard for the Queen, I suppose, to make her own mark. Do you think she managed to make her own mark on any of the gardens that um, she had access to? I think she would um, give opinions. Nothing was done without her say-so, without her approval. Um, I don't think there was a red box to do with the garden, but certainly the gardeners would never do anything unless it had been run by her. Uh, and those wonderful at Buckingham Palace particularly, which is really an outdoor function room. Uh, it's not quite so intimate, but the Queen certainly in her earlier years walked her corgis there. Um, most days, and the the deep and long herbaceous boards are there, which were timed for the garden parties. And then in, in latter years, it, it it became a real challenge for the gardeners because the garden parties were moved to earlier in the year. So, of course, then that herbaceous board had to be completely remodelled, restocked to make it flower that bit earlier, whereas the garden parties used to be, you know, in sort of June, July. They then were brought forward to May, June. That's quite a challenge for the gardeners. But the gardens there, of course, were full of trees that had been planted by crowned heads of Europe. And, um, and the Queen, 
uh, and, and the Duke as well. So it was very much, um, yes, an outdoor function room, but nevertheless one that was enjoyed, you know, the largest private garden in London. And, and a huge habitat area. I mean, I think we sort of forget that. We kind of think it's it's all kind of big formal lawns, but um, obviously big lakes too, but huge treed area. If you look at it on Google Maps, actually, just from, you know, what a big green area it is. And increasingly, and I know um was lucky enough once to hear the head gardener at Buckingham Palace talking about very intentionally creating habitats. And I got the sense the Queen was very involved and interested in that. Yes, it was very much, um, apart from the, the odd mown lawn, well, large areas of mown lawn, obviously, where the tents go up and, and people have their tea. But there are great swathes of, of longer meadow grass there. And one area of lawn particularly which is quite damp which is simply awash with snakes head fritillaries in april glorious sight i'm uh, the only time i've ever seen anything like it was in the meadows in oxford where the fritillaries grow there but there is this one great meadow in buckingham palace um which is simply filled with fritillaries snakes head fritillaries glorious and of course the lake itself it used to have flamingos on no longer uh, the foxes saw them off but again for attracting waterfowl uh, it's a matchless wildlife haven right in the centre of London and of a decent size that things feel safe in there. Yeah, yeah. But you mentioned King Charles, as he is now, and of course, very famously, a hands-on gardener, absolutely interested, passionate about it. How do you think that's going to change? His role inevitably will change. You said very much about so many things will have to change, but surely there's a great solace in gardening. I, I, you know, I know you know him, uh, obviously, through the garden. How do you think that's going to influence him going forward? None of us knows yet how he will settle into the year and where he will be in the different seasons of the year in the same way that the Queen moved between Windsor, Sandringham and Balmoral. We don't know that yet, and I, he may not have decided himself. Um, I'm quite sure that his love of gardening and, and his need to garden will not abate. He gets great solace from it. Um, even things like hedge laying, where he wears his big old um, outdoor jacket, which is patched all over the place, uh, with his gloves on and his and his safety glasses on. He likes doing. He's a doer. He, he's, he suffers with his back, which lets him down every now and again, back pain. But creating a garden and physically doing it, he finds incredibly therapeutic, I know, and I can't see that ever stopping. And of course, he now has an opportunity as the next incumbent at places like Sandringham uh, and Balmoral. Well, he has his own wonderful garden at Burke Hall, which is on the a smaller, it's a large house, but it's smaller than Balmoral Castle, on the Balmoral Estate. And that's beautiful. And the steps going right down to the river there. And either side of the steps, I remember there, absolute forest, a sea of salvia horminum, clary, clary sage in pink and purple. And it's a glorious view looking down. And again, that's him. He's made this amazing garden at Dumfries House in Ayrshire, which was derelict. And I went up there with him and uh, toured it when it, he first took it on. And it was absolute wilderness. And he said, no, we're going to sort this out. We're going to do it. I thought, well, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. What I hadn't banked on was how quickly he could get it done. And I was up there only a few weeks ago now, and it's the most beautiful garden. And Dumfries House Estate is, is educating so many people in all kinds of crafts, from textiles to um, masonry and um, 
original traditional methods of, of building, all kinds of things. 12,000 people go through Dumfries House a year, schools and grown-ups doing vocational courses, doing educational courses. It's the most amazing initiative that the Prince's Foundation um, have set up up there, and the garden is a huge part of it. So uh, he will, you know, once a gardener, you can take the man out of the garden, but you can't take the garden out of the man. He'll be doing it. And, of course, he inherited that love or uh, absorbed it, really, through, I think, mostly through his grandmother. Would that be right? Yeah, Queen Elizabeth, as she was always known, Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mother, um, was a very keen gardener. I think my first encounter with her was at an RHS show, and it must have been in 1977, because they'd brought out a rose, it might have been cockers, I think, anyway, a rose was brought out called Silver Jubilee, and I was there with my journalist's pen as I was deputy for amateur gardening, and I was I was writing down, I saw this new rose, Silver Jubilee, and I'm writing down the, the details of it, and, and I was suddenly nudged aside uh, and I turned to see who was nudging me and it wasn't the Queen Mother but it was somebody who was easing the Queen Mother in to have a look at it and she said oh no no please carry on as I'm standing there with my pencil and pad and she looked and I'm thinking what shall I write about this Silver Jubilee Rose and the Queen Mother said isn't it beautiful a confection of pinks and I wrote down a confection of pinks. And I said, who said it? So I got my lovely bit of copy from the Queen Mother. And I met her every now and again. I, I've taken over a, a couple of patronages, actually, from Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. I'm now uh, the president of Perennial, the Gardener's Royal Benevolent Society, and also um, of the London Children's Flower Society, both of which were... So I like to feel I'm... I've taken up her spade in a way. But she had that lovely garden, which I saw when she was still alive, right on the north coast of Scotland at the Castle of May, where conditions are fiendish. The walls are 15 feet high, but they tell me in winter, cabbages get blown over the wall. The wind is so strong. And it looks straight across at, um, you know, at Orkney. I mean, there's nothing between... Um, May and and the islands up there. It, it's the most glorious spot. The king, when he was Prince of Wales, certainly would go up there at the beginning of August for a week every year. Um, and I've been lucky enough to be up there with him, and he, he loves it. And he he'll then go across to the island of Stroma and have a walk around there and look at that. And he, he likes the the escape, I suppose, in a way from the pressures of metropolitan life, which are most of his days. Um, and to go somewhere really wild and woolly like that is a great escape. And if it has a garden, so much the better. Yes. I've, yes, been to Castle May a couple of times and you're right, it's fearsome weather when it's against you, but glorious when it's with you. And yes, you look one way, it's Orkney, another way, it's basically Norway uh, and uh, and sort of head on up to the Arctic. But um, probably the Probably the most northerly mainland walled garden, I would have thought, but um, a real escape, I know, for the for the Queen Mother, and obviously Prince Charles has that under his, uh, you know, domain, as it were. The, so the inside of the castle is is very much as it was when she was there. Her, her mac hangs in the hall with her hat, and you feel really as though she's just stepped out for a little while. And I'm quite sure he feels the same as well. It's a very cosy house. I mean, it's, it was a castle, I know, but it's a small castle, very thick walls, but the rooms are very friendly. Classic Scottish country house rooms. Yes, definitely. If anyone's ever thinking of going, go, it's such a brilliant place. There are also, the stables there have been beautifully converted into, um, you know, you can stay there, bed and breakfast. And I did say to him one morning, 
Uh, I said, it's very good, sir. I said, this must be, uh, this is when he was Prince of Wales, of course. I said, it must be the best Airbnb in the country. That's H-E-I-R, B&B. He said, Alan, that's absolutely dreadful. I said, no, it's rather fun though, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Great trade market. (laughs) But what's that, you know, gardening often goes down to generations and and clearly it has um, from Queen Mother and, well, and well before, as you've documented. Um, What about signs of the next generation? You know, uh, Kate, the new Princess of Wales, and obviously Harry, Duke of Sussex, both famously involved in some gardens at Chelsea. Do you think future kings will have green fingers? I hope so. I hope it's rubbed off on them in the same way that one hopes it's rubbed off on one's own children. I know that uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales, as they are now, um, have had the gardens at Anne Hall uh, designed and landscaped, so clearly it matters to them what surrounds their house. I've not been there, but um, I know the person who, who designed it, and I think there's a healthy interest there. And I think being brought up... It's from me and my own children. I just wanted to give them a healthy respect and enjoyment of the great outdoors. And if you can do that rather than force stuff down their throat, and I think that's what the king would have done when he was Prince of Wales, is to make sure that his two sons had a love and an understanding and a respect for nature and gardens and then let them go their own way. They've seen what can be done. And they, I remember years and years and years ago going to Highgrove and there was a treehouse there. Inside the treehouse, there was a little sort of plastic tea set when the boys were very, very young. So they clearly were out and about in the garden at a very early age. Yes, that treehouse is quite something. So again, if anyone gets a chance to go to Highgrove, it's a fantastic discovery. And as you said, there's been a long line and a long history of royal gardening. So tell us about some of the greatest royal gardeners that that you uncovered in all of your research. Well, the first garden proper was William the Conqueror's son, William II, and he had a he had a menagerie, a menagerie at Woodstock. So it, it was a it was more a zoological garden than a garden. And through the ages, uh, you know, in those early years, obviously in the, in the Middle Ages, gardens were very much um, medicinal as well as beautiful. And that whole time during um, Henry VIII and and Hampton Court, they were quite lurid, some of the gardens in those days. They had great poles in them that had a sort of barley sugar twist painting, green and white, going up with kings and queens beasts on the top. And they had, rather like those um, pieces of corrugated iron that are in the middle of motorway reservations, they had those running round beds, not in corrugated iron, but in wood. And again, they were painted in green and white chevrons. Some of the gardens were quite lurid in those days. And it wasn't until we get much more modern where we start seeing more attractive flowers being grown and, and uh, you know, flowery meads, as they were called, started to come in. But then you need to get really much closer to our present day. The great thing about gardening in this country is because in a way, our monarchy has dictated it, not least because of what happened to the kings and queens of England. I mean, uh, Charles II uh, being uh, you know, banished from the country and going overseas and, and going to France and going to Holland and then coming back with the restoration and putting into practice all the things, the ideas he'd pinched from the Low Countries uh, and from France and the long water. That Hampton Court is a, you know, a straightforward nick, really, from the influences he had over in Europe. And to see that and to look at it and think, 
that that is still there. And then the Privy Garden, which was recreated a good few years ago now, the more formal garden, which is very much in the William and Mary style, they brought their tastes over. And what we've done is we've kind of run with them and added to them. And the the real reason why we've managed to be so fortunate in this country with the evolution of our gardening is because we're a cool, temperate climate. Uh, and if you look, you think about the British Isles, we're talking about the Castle of May, very north coast of Scotland, where we can have a subarctic flora, subarctic flowers and plants. And then down to Devon, Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly, where we've got Mediterranean plants growing. And yet, if you look at the space we occupy on the shoulder of the globe, it's actually quite small. But the variation in, in this country and what we can grow, and we've got acid soil and we've got alkaline soil, we're very lucky with our seasonality spring summer autumn winter and the changing seasons which change our view uh, but also the fact that we've had this because the monarchy has, has brought ideas and our explorers have come and, and have gone and plant collecting and brought all that back it's why we have this wide range of plants and flowers that we can grow and did the monarchy uh principally i'm thinking here bringing forward to Victorian times, how much did they help fuel that appetite for discovery and exploration and those plants to be brought back? Well, Prince Albert was very much into science and development and the future of, of technology, uh, but also they were both very keen on, on their outlook. I mean, if you go to Osborne House on, um, on the Isle of Wight, on, on the north coast of the Isle of Wight, it looks across the Solent. And I remember the first time I went there thinking, oh, it'll be a really heavy old Victorian house. It's a big Victorian house built by uh, Thomas Cubitt and Prince Albert. Thomas Cubitt, one of um, the Queen Consort's um, ancestors. Uh, She's related to Cubitt. Um, And you look at it, it's like being on the Riviera. The windows are huge. It it looks, although it faces north, it's a wonderfully sunny aspect it's looking at. And you you think, goodness me, they did loads of tree planting going on there and a very good kitchen garden. And again, there, which he obviously started the Rose Garden at Balmoral as well. So, yes, they loved it, and Albert loved planting trees. There are lots of trees and, and shrubs that they planted there, as well as a good kitchen garden. Would that be one of the longest-lasting legacies, do you think, of royal gardeners, or, or sort of looking back over the... reviewing the kind of panoply of royal gardeners that there were? What, who, who's left the biggest legacy, do you think? Well, it's constant and ongoing. We've got no Tudor gardens left as they were. The, re, the ones at Hampton Court are now recreated. Uh, what we do have, and it's astonishing to think that some of the oak trees in Windsor Great Park were mature when William the Conqueror invaded in 1066... They are still there. Some of them are fairly skeletal now and hollow-centred, but they are still alive. And they would have been 200 years old in 1066. And these are trees that are over a 1,000 years old. That's an amazing thought. Who stood under that? What have they seen? I love that aspect of it. And then, of course, the Victorian era and the the kings. Uh, George V wasn't that wild about gardening. He used to find Chelsea extraordinarily boring. <laughs> But George VI was Queen Mother's husband. He worked with Eric Saville to do quite a lot at um, at, at Windsor and again at Sandringham with those gardens that Geoffrey Jellicoe made. And he loved rhododendrons, George VI. Um, Queen Mary was famous during the war for chopping down ivy from trees on the Badminton Estate where she stayed during the war to be out of harm's way. And she would go in great forays out there with a sort of machete and hack down ivy and take a team of gardeners with her to do it. 
it. So Queen Mary, I'm sure she did like gardening, but um, she um, was quite destructive too, <laughs> for the greater good. <laughs> in that capacity, in that role, you have a sense of context that many of us don't. Uh, you kind of understand where you are in, in kind of place of history, which I suppose is one reason why tree planting, grand avenues, grand landscapes are, are very much a part of the royal um, output or the royal, uh, you know, uh, legacy that's left. And I, and I guess I've, I'm thinking here then of, as you say, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, uh, planting so many trees. I know in his capacity within Windsor, um, obviously he had responsibility for the grounds. So there he will have been putting many trees in, which will be there presumably for another many centuries. Yeah, I think the prince was very concerned and very early on, again, in the same way that... The our current king uh, was ahead of his time in terms of the environment and conservation. So too was Prince Philip. I have a, a book here from the early 1970s in which he and James Fisher were very much promoting the fact that we need to look after things. They're not just going to carry on unless we take care of them. And certainly as ranger of Windsor Great Park, he very much had an eye to the future, not just with his avenues, but also with woodland planting as well. I mean, he realises, as anybody would, that a lot of those trees aren't going to last forever. And he wanted continuity. And he wanted to make sure that on his watch, Windsor Great Park thrived. And what's particularly lovely is the initiative that was started before Queen Elizabeth II died, which was the Queen's Green Canopy. And this great initiative just to remind us all of the need to continue to plant trees. We had a great gap between the two world wars where not much planting went on. So there was a good sort of 50 or 60 year hiatus where tree planting was much reduced except perhaps for softwood forestry and we're very aware now that right tree right place but that right across the country we can make sure we have green trees which are good for the landscape but also good for plant and animal and human health you know we need them in terms of carbon capture and the and the queen's green canopy um, campaign um, initiative was launched, obviously, for the uh, Platinum Jubilee this year, um, but it's going to carry on through the winter and in, into next spring. So there's still plenty of opportunity for people to be involved, because I know there's been mass community planting, you know, in its name, but that but that carries on, and I think that's important. Um, but the other thing is, of course, the, the Meadows initiative that Prince Charles, as he was at the time, he initiated the, the, the Meadows, and, and again, in the Queen's name. Yeah, the Coronation Meadows are wonderful, and I think just because, you know, it, it, just because something's named a coronation meadow, it doesn't mean other time's gone now to plant that up. We can't do it. Yeah, the meadows celebrated the Queen's coronation in 1953 um, and the Queen's green canopy is, is ongoing in terms of celebrating the, and, and, and improving the tree cover in the UK. Two great initiatives and the Prince of Wales, as he was, was also great uh, proponent of hedging and of leaving headlands around farmland for wildlife. I think it was always done and I'm sure he'll continue as king to make sure that this responsibility, this custodianship and stewardship of the landscape will carry on. He's a great hedge planter, hedge layer, coronation meadow sower and tree planter. Uh, and I do remember one tree planting with the Queen at Osborne on the Isle of Wight. I was asked to help her plant a palm tree to celebrate the centenary of the uh, gifting of Osborne to the nation by Edward VII because it had been Queen Victoria's home. And he, after a year of after her death, he decided it should go to the nation. He didn't want Osborne himself. So the Queen came to plant a tree and I've had a house on the Isle of Wight for a good many years now. 
and I was asked to help her plant the tree and the Queen came up and smiled and I handed her the spade and she threw a couple of brief spadefuls of earth at the trunk of this palm tree which had been sort of settled in, you know, she didn't have to manoeuvre it and then she handed the spade to me, held out both her arms in a sort of Debbie McGee style da-da and uh, demonstrated to the surrounding people that I was going to be planting this tree now to a lot of laughter and a round of applause. She had a wonderful sense of humour. <laughs> she must have planted a lot of, planted, uh, uh, assisted, uh, planting a lot of trees in her time. <laughs> so there you go, you you reveal the inside story. So it's always done, it's always done in advance, is it? <laughs> so, well, they're settled in in advance and then there's a sort of ceremonial bit to add at the end, you know, and that was what was going on. Somebody said to me the other day, I wonder what's happened to all these spades that were used by members of the royal family planting trees? And there's a thought. <laughs> there's a thought, yes. So just so, so, so just bringing it back to, to sort of memories what will be your sort of fondest lasting memory of the queen in the in kind of gardens and gardening i think the fact that she loved what she saw she smiled beautifully whenever she saw something that pleased her and i have a photograph um of she and I and the Prince of Wales and the Dean of Westminster Abbey standing in the little corridor alongside the Cloister Garth at Westminster Abbey. I thought it was very sad that there was no national memorial to Lancelot Capability Brown in this country. So I wrote a letter to the Dean of Westminster Abbey saying, do you think we could have a memorial? It was his tercentenary, Capability Brown. And the Dean said, come and see me. So I went to see the Dean and I thought, if I can just get a square tile in Poet's Corner saying Lancelot Capability Brown and his dates that would be lovely and the, uh, the dean said what about a fountain in the middle of the cloister garth and i was quite taken aback um the cloister garth is the big green area in the middle of westminster abbey uh and and i said um that would be absolutely wonderful so i managed to arrange for a fountain to be built in the middle of the cloister garth and when the queen came to open the triforium gallery with the prince of wales they were brought out down the side of the cloister garth and i was asked to be there by the side of the fountain uh, and i noticed um that the queen was wearing a cerise suit uh, you know a jacket and skirt of sort of lovely cerise pink and my tie was also predominantly cerise pink and the Prince of Wales said to me that's very tactful Alan wearing the same colour as Her Majesty and I said fibbing of course uh, well I rang Her Majesty's dresser this morning and checked what I should wear and she told me what so I have a photograph of both of us laughing like drains and the Queen thought it was it's I think sometimes it's good to remember the silly things in life, really, the, the moments at which you touch base. And when you laugh with somebody, it is the greatest uplifting thing in life. You can feel the endorphins going every bit as rapidly as when you're in the gym. And to laugh with the Queen, well, that was something spectacular. It's um, several moments like that that I really treasure. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>